BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. Where we continue to follow the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden now. Those are just some of the scenes overnight as thousands of Americans gathered in celebration of Osama bin Laden's death. Former Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill says he has thought about the mission every day since that May Day in 2011. Multiple conversations you had with Rob O'Neill over the past year and a half. How'd you get and you described that his head kind of exploded yes. when you hit him. I, I actually hit him three times because I shot him twice when he was standing and once on the ground. That is the fucking American badass. We are not going for fame and we are not going for bravado. We are going for the single mom who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a Tuesday morning and then 45 minutes later she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper. If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator. I'm Rob O'Neill, and this is the Operator Podcast. All right, it is now episode 13, lucky number 13, which means Halloween is over, which is good. Halloween's always a fun season, though. I, I did see the new Halloween, Halloween Ends is what it's called. It's a fun movie. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Halloween series. This is the last one. I guess they finally got rid of Michael Myers. Uh, my wife and I and some friends, it's tradition. We go to see the Halloween movies every Halloween. They said last year was the last one. This will be the last one. I'm thinking this one will be the last one, but it's good. Michael Myers fans. And it gets, I mean, for being really stabby, they're just fun movies. Soundtrack's good. The acting is great. Jamie Lee Curtis is awesome. Uh, and Michael Myers is over, which means also that um, we are almost almost to the midterms. We're almost there, and that'll be over too, and you will be done with hearing about elections for at least a couple days until the next most important election of your lifetime. And also, here's the best part, though. It's also hunting season. We are in the nuts and bolts of hunting season. I love hunting season. I grew up in Montana hunting, and it goes on all over the place. Right around now between Thanksgiving is Peak for rifle season. If, if you're elk, an elk hunter, it's during what's called the rut, and that's when the, the elk are in heat, and they basically act like men and women do in, in real life, is the women kind of run around and men chase them and yell at each other and then fight a lot because the men are stupid. Um, but anyway, I, I grew up hunting. I did love hunting. I, I finally got the, I got the bug back. I want to hunt again because... Um, you know, we, I did grow up hunting. We, we started hunting. I did at an early age because of my father decided after his second divorce he needed a hobby. 
which kind of like I joined the Navy because, you know, I got dumped and I needed a hobby. That's a lot of people do a lot of things because they get dumped. But we started hunting. We actually started off hunting in um, with my uncle, my dad's brother, Jack. So my, my father, Tom O'Neill, Jack O'Neill, and then my cousin, Corey O'Neill, Jack's son, my cousin. And we started off. Here's how bad we were. We were in a two-door Subaru, I think. We started with Antelope, and we ended up getting very good. I've told some of the stories. We'll get back into that eventually. Um, And I I didn't have the bug for a while. That's what I was getting at. And here's the reason I didn't have the bug. Because once I joined the Navy, and especially after 9-11, my job was to hunt people. My team's job was to hunt people. At SEAL Team 6, we hunted people. Because we were at a time where we, you know, I say things in the, uh, uh, this and that about leadership and leaders, and a lot of people do. But we were at a time, uh, the quagmire, we use the word quagmire quite a bit, um, in Iraq where we really needed to figure out what we were going to do because we invaded Iraq for the wrong reasons, and then we got Saddam out of power pretty quickly, and there were no weapons of mass destruction, which there were weapons of mass destruction, which is why we went. Um, And I've talked about that before, but there got to a point in 2007 at the height where a thing called the awakening happened. We were being led, we being JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, SEAL Team 6, were being led by General Stan McChrystal, and he was one of the leaders that got it. You know, he gets it. When you ever talk about a guy and he gets it, Stan McChrystal gets it. And we were working for him underneath Delta Force, and they came up with what was called the awakening. And the awakening was the realization that it's not just good guys and bad guys, and it's not just fighters against fighters. We're in Iraq, and there are different types of people. Everything, you know, there's obviously Muslims, there's Kurds, there's Shiites, there's Sunnis. Saddam was a Sunni, uh, the Iranians are Shiite, but importantly, Al-Qaeda is Sunni. And, and, and believe me, Shiites and Sunnis pretty much hate each other worse than they hate us. But sometimes the enemy of my enemy is my friend and shit like that. Here's where it got tricky because these, anytime we fought Al-Qaeda toe-to-toe, we fucked them up. We just beat their ass. So they didn't want to fight us toe-to-toe. For obvious reasons. I wouldn't want to fight our army. I would not want to fight our Marine Corps. So they would use improvised explosive devices, roadside bombs. They'd use H, H, uh, <laughs> house-borne HBIEDs, house-borne improvised explosive devices. We, we use acronyms and, and uh, we abbreviate shit to the point that it's um, G-R-O-S-S. But what these Sunni... Al-Qaeda fighters realized they wanted to kill Americans, and it was a lot easier because we started a war in Iraq to get to Iraq to kill Americans. And there's more Americans there anyway than there are in Afghanistan. Why, as a foreign fighter, or not, they didn't call themselves foreign fighters. They just, you know, the same reason that in China, they don't call it Chinese food. They just call it food. Um, So it's easier to get to Iraq to kill Americans. So when they got there, though, they needed to hold up. There's got to be a place to sleep. There's got to be a place to live. So they could live. That Well, they didn't. it's not like they were welcome with open arms. They could force their way into other Sunnis' houses, which they did. And they were forced to live there. And, and it's not like they were like, hey, seriously, let us in. It's like, if you don't let us live here, we're going to live here anyway after we cut your kids' heads off in front of you and then slowly cut you from the bottom up. Now, imagine being that person because 
it's like I said, it's not just good guys against bad guys. In most places, it's just normal people trying to get on with their lives. And that was the case here. So put yourself in some some Iraqi shoes. Okay, so I'm a Sunni, and uh, there's Americans everywhere who are invaders, and I have to be good to them because I don't want them taking all my stuff and breaking my house up and arresting me and putting a hood on me in an orange jumpsuit. But then these assholes come in that are also Sunni, and they say, hey, the Americans aren't going to be here forever, are they? And we know historically, because we fucking do it all the time, we're going to leave eventually. So now they're in a spot because Al-Qaeda is going to kill them in a bad way. We're going to do something bad to them. So they've got to figure out a way to um, let these Sunnis stay there without pissing off the Americans because, you know, we're dumb and we have short memories and we'll, we'll kick your door in too. So, um, but the awakening was the realization that if we can separate them, separate the good people, not even the good people, the normal people from the terrorists, and then if we can kill the terrorists, they're gone. And then the locals don't have to worry about them anymore. So we went on kill missions, and we got to figure out a way to separate them. And that's all we, you know, that's all we got to do. Um, and, and the way to separate them, you know, we, like I said, we hunted people, and I'm not going to get into how we got there or, or whatever we did or our tactics, but essentially we would wake up, we being SEAL Team 6. I was going to say the good guys, but who knows at this day and age. But we would wake up, get our brief from the powers, not the powers that be, but the people who were up all night, the intelligence people, the intel guys and girls that get no recognition whatsoever. They found something. We would have our coffee, have our breakfast, and then we would go to those houses. And we would get there a certain way. Essentially, what we wanted to do was get there as quietly as we can, get in the point of least resistance as quietly as we, as quietly as we can, and then you got to separate the good guys from the bad guys. Now, we can get in your house as loud as we want, and we've done that. And we can blow the double doors off the exterior wall, and then we can, we can kick in your door, we can hit it with a sledgehammer, we can get through your fucking wall with a chainsaw. We've done it. And that's scary, speaking of Halloween. I've seen guys do it. That's got to be scary, and I know those guys. And then we got to get it and separate it. But we figured if we could get there quietly, uh, we, can, we can do it. Now, I mentioned blowing the doors off of places because um, you want to get in there. You, you, regardless of what people say, we are the good guys. And we're not just going to kill everybody. And you can't do that. And, and trust me, m- morally, later in life, you don't want to know you've done that. You want to do everything you can to be the good guy. And I'm talking even in, in chaos and explosions, when a young kid gets separated from his mom, we're the people that go across to make sure we get that kid back to his mom. Al-Qaeda wouldn't do that for us, by the way, but we do that. And even if we go, you know, we want to catch a mother sleeping. Even if we go in hot, which we've done, and I've seen this in different war zones, I've seen it in Afghanistan. I've seen it in Iraq. You can blow a, a double door off a wall with a seven-foot charge of C6. And um, I've seen people in the courtyard sleep through it. I'm not even kidding. They just they sleep through it. I don't know if they're used to it. It's like the same thing when you're inserting somewhere, and the closer you get to a target on foot, you start to hear dogs barking everywhere. It's like they're definitely going to wake up. They're definitely, definitely going to know we're here because the dogs are barking. Eh, not always. They're sleeping. Blow the doors. They're still sleeping. And so we'd get to them. Ideally, we would get to them quietly, and then you gotta you gotta separate them. And and what we would lo- what I learned as um, I was what, we, what I, well what we called a battlefield interrogator. They did eventually dumb that down. You gotta make it nicer. Um, we started calling it I think a, a, a tactical questioner, because God forbid you're interrogating 
a terrorist in a room with his buddies on the floor that you just blasted in the head. You don't want to offend this guy, do you? So tactical questioner. But you got to keep it simple. Keep it simple. Master the basics, like I always say. There's no reason to go in and start screaming at a guy who only speaks Arabic, Arabic in English and just because he doesn't answer, you hit him in the head, start screaming louder in English. He, oh, oh, now I get it. Now, now I understand. You know, it's, it's not like a cue ball. The harder you hit them, the better their English gets. It doesn't work that way. So we got to figure out a way to do it. And, and as simply as I can say it, the best way that we did it was, I, okay, ideally get in there quiet. Pick the lock. Quietly break a window. Get these guys, you wake them up. And then all you got to do, find the guys. Don't I mean, the women can be shady as shit. The kids will be the best one you can talk to because you can just build them up. Like, you're the man of the house. What's going on here? You know, tell me because finally I'm talking to a man. That's a different story. But you separate the men. And what I found the best was because torture doesn't work. I mean, eventually torture, someone's going to say what they think you want them to say to stop being tortured. But what I learned was ask them some simple questions. Separate the guys so they can't hear you. And just ask them some very, very simple questions. Uh, Who's the man of the house? Who owns a house? How many guys are here? What are their names? Write down the names, let them go. Not let them go, but put them in another room, and then grab the next guy. Whose house is this? Who's the man of the house? How many guys are here? What are their names? So say you got six guys in a house. You ask them all, all six the same basic questions. Four of them tell you the same thing. Guess what? The other two are your bad guys. That's it. Um, so not every... Um, not every... Night was very, very exciting. So we actually did start to do stuff in there. So you get into a house. You got to wake these dudes up. And uh, the way we would do it, again, pick the lock, whatever, get in quietly, walk up to the dude. Here's where it turned into kind of, kind of like fun for us because if you can win the battle psychologically, you're probably going to – once you get on their emotional side and their psychological side, have them convinced that you're dealing like the ninjas with lions – us and the dogs and the ninjas and lions are here. They're not going to want to fight you. So what we found, the best way to wake these dudes up, you creep into a room, and they're sleeping. Okay, they're sleeping in the courtyard. They sleep on the rooftop. It's hot in Iraq. It's hot in Afghanistan in the summer. They're sleeping inside on the, um, on the floor. They roll out floor mats. They sleep there. And so you w- find the guys, and you walk up to them. And the easiest way to do it is you got to go to them first. You want to make sure, this is a good rule in life, if someone's your enemy and they're sleeping in front of you, try to make sure they're not wearing a suicide vest, make sure this dude I'm about to be to you know to wake up out of a slumber doesn't want to be a martyr and end up in paradise. So the best way to do it, I've found, I hope you never find yourself in this situation, is go over to him. You kind of put your fire hand, if you will, if you're one of those Instagram warriors, your fucking hand, on their neck, and you slide it down because they're wearing their little pa- their pajamas. You slide it down like this. What you're looking for is a suicide vest. So you want to see, you know, if you find one, here's my advice. Back up and shoot him in the fucking face because it doesn't take much to set off a suicide vest and you don't want to be in the room when that happens. So you check that and now he doesn't have one on. Here's where it gets fun because especially when you know it's a terrorist, but he doesn't have a vest and there's not a gun in it. You know, he's not sleeping with a gun. Like I always say, it's a good, just good advice. I, I always have a, 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 a pillow underneath my gun. But he doesn't have one. So, so now you're looking at a terrorist. You know he's a bad guy. You're looking at what the media plays up as, you know, this vicious killer, this, this uh, mammoth 
terrorist, and, and you're, you're right over his face. And now, I, at the time, when I was a SEAL Team 6, I was, you know, 225, 230. My guys were big, and we're wearing body armor. We have guns. We got nods down, so our faces are green, and we have helmets because safety. Um, and you go over to his lips, and you just touch him on his, on his sensitive little lips, and you go, shh, 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 shh. And that's when he wakes up. And usually he shits his pants. Not to say you can tell the difference because he didn't smell good in the first place. But um, that's what happens. And he poops his pants. And um, we started to try to try to um, try to see how many of those we could do a night, because um, we we were Red Squadron, SEAL Team Six, Red Red Team, SEAL Team Six, and uh, our our you know our leader, our uh, logo was the Red Man, in honor of the Native American warrior because they were warriors. And we wanted that warrior with us when we went to combat. So in honor of the Native American war, I mean, even if you, I remember I talked about, if you remember, I talked about the Bin Laden raid. The pro word that we found Bin Laden was Geronimo in honor of the warrior Geronimo. So we call this counting coup. And counting coup is a tradition of the Native American warrior. And essentially, uh, among the Plains Indians of North America, counting coup is a warrior tradition of winning prestige against an enemy in battle. And I'm reading this. One of the traditional ways of showing bravery in the face of an enemy involves intimidating him and is hoped persuading the enemy to avoid defeat. These victories then remembered and then the recounted oral tradition, all that stuff. Uh, historically, any blow against the enemy counted as a coup. But the most prestigious acts involved touching an enemy warrior with a hand, bow, or a coup stick and escaping unharmed. Uh, everything in the whole event was unharmed except, obviously, for the enemy's pride. And that was uh, counting coup, and it's been, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's famous, it's cool. So we would call that counting coup. I need to talk about this. Uh, um, the most modern example of counting coup was from Joseph Medicine Crow. He was a Native American writer, a historian, and a war chief, the last war chief in Crow Nation. Uh, he was a World War II veteran. He was a scout in the 103rd Infantry Division of the U.S. Army. He received the, uh, the Bronze Star Medal, fought in World War II. He was a badass. He, he was later actually presented the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama. But I love this story about him. Uh, he fought in World War II. This is so cool. After spending the latter half of, of uh, 1942 working in the naval shipyards in Washington, in Bremerton, uh, he joined the U.S. Army, like I said, became a scout and fought in World War II. Wherever he went into battle, he wore his war paint, which were two red stripes on his arms. It's beneath his uniform as a sacred, um, and a sacred yellow-painted eagle feather provided by a Sundance medicine man beneath his helmet. I'm like literally getting goosebumps. Now, here's what's cool is there were four tasks required by the crow to become a war chief. And he was the last war chief. That is touching an enemy without killing him, taking an enemy's weapon, leading a successful war party, and stealing an enemy's horse. I'll let that sink in for a second. He did this in World War II. Uh, he touched a living soldier, disarmed the... So um, he... He, he led a successful war party and stole 50 horses from the Nazis, from the SS, from a German camp. Uh, and while he was riding away, he was singing a traditional Crow honor song as he rode off with these uh, German horses from the Nazis. And um, 
this one blew my mind. He, the one I said, you face the enemy, you touch him without killing him. The story is he, he ran into a young, physically ran into a young German soldier. This is in battle. The collision knocked the German's weapon to the ground. Mr. Crow lowered his weapon and the two fought hand to hand. In the end, Mr. Crow got the best of the German, grabbing him by the neck and choking him. He had the intent of killing this German soldier. When on the spot, the German soldier who did not speak English and, and Mr. Crow did not speak German, he yelled a word they both understood, and that word was mama. So he let him go. And uh, he became the last member of the Crow Nation to become um, a war chief, and he ended up, after he got the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom, uh, he died uh, in Billings, Montana. And that's just the, I mean, that, how cool is that? Counting coup, that's what we did. That's why, um, that's, that's why hunting to me, I, I never really wanted to get back out until I, you know, I do right now. I'm going to go hunting. I, I got the bug. Um, I do have one more story about, um, about before I went to war, I'll get back into hunting for that. Um, right before I left for Afghanistan, my first deployment to Afghanistan, and this is going to sound bizarre as hell, but it's true. I was walking through Richmond, Virginia on some training and uh, in, the, in the city, on the street, and a red hawk flew down. And um, it landed on the sidewalk. And like, I, I mean, as far as I care, he was staring at me, and he flew away. And I, I got back, and I, I talked to a member, a medicine man from the Northern Cheyenne in Billings, Montana, again, too. And I said, what was this? And, and he said... Uh, he said, that's okay. The, 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 the birds are watching out for you. You're going to be fine. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. And he actually gave me a bag of, of, um, of medicine, like a little rocks. It's incredible. Uh, so that was, um, that's why I didn't want to hunt. I, I am going to get back to hunting. Hunt, I learned a lot in, uh, in hunting because, like I mentioned with my father, we, uh, we, we started off hunting, and then we gradually we got pretty good at it. So with inflation rising... And with diesel running out, what if I told you food shortages are next? And they're no joke. They're coming soon. That's why I strongly encourage you to get some emergency food. It stays fresh for the day you need it even years from now. With everything falling apart in America and around the world, I urge you to get your emergency food today by going to preparewithrob.com. Preparewithrob.com. You'll find a $250 savings on a ready-hour three-month emergency food kit from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is America's largest and most trusted preparedness company. They've served millions of your fellow citizens. Right now, you'll save $250 on a three-month kit with very, very good, tasty breakfasts, lunch, dinners, drinks, and snacks that give you over 2,000 calories a day. Get one kit for every member of your family and save $250 each. Your orders ship fast and they ship free. When you're ready for real preparedness, Look for Ready Hour Foods from My Patriot Supply. Go to preparewithrob.com and save $250 on your emergency food kit. Preparewithrob.com. But hunting, yeah, we, we, uh, we weren't good at first, but we got good. And we got good by the way you get good at everything, by, by trial and error, by doing it again, by talking to people who had been doing it for a while. And, you know, hunters are funny like anybody else. They're, you know, they're, they're probably going to bullshit you sometimes, but find out what they're doing and, and observe what they're doing. Uh, learn from your mistakes. Don't be afraid you, you admitted a mistake. Um, like with, we, we started off with 
my dad, my father Tom, his brother Jack, and Corey, my cousin Corey, the four of us in a a two-door Subaru hunting antelope, which is the fastest uh, animal in North America, I believe. And they won't jump fences. I know that for certain. So they'll just run around all day long like jackasses. And the the, the only bigger jackasses are the, the people driving the trucks, chasing them around, doing shit that's so unsafe that I wouldn't recommend it to anybody right now. I'd be, I'd be handing out safety violations like Halloween candy because it was just Halloween. Uh, but then we got into other stuff. You know, we started hunting whitetail deer, which we have in Montana, which, you know, people around the country can hunt whitetails. Mule deer, which are in the in the in the mountains then the and the hills there. And then elk. The the big one is elk. That's that's the big deal out west. And as far as tags that you can buy every year as a resident, and I think you can even do it as an out of stater to get a tag. And and the prize is a bull elk, the male elk. And uh, so right now is the, the ideal season for rifle hunting with an elk. But hunting hunting animals is where I learned a lot of things that I did in the Navy, and they were reinforced in the Navy too. Do uh, do everything like you do anything. Make sure your gun sighted it. Sight your gun and make sure you know you're zero. You don't. You might not need it now, but when you need it, you need it. So try to be prepared for stuff that if something, you know, something's going to happen, it's just going to happen. Don't die because you got stupid. Don't die because you got bored. In the military, uh, especially in combat, change your change the batteries every single night. Change the batteries in your nuts. Change the batteries in your lasers. Make sure your batteries are fresh because batteries are cheap. Lives are expensive. Don't die because you're stupid. Change them out. But but uh, the same, you know, in, in hunting, it was um, sight your gun in. And it took me a while to learn that. At first when we went out, I thought it was uh, just enough to go out to a place near Homestead Lake up by Butte, Montana, where there's a, a rock backdrop, and take a milk carton and get you know a certain pace count away from the milk carton, shoot it, and if you hit it, you, you know the milk carton's this big and elk's that big, and you know technically that's right, but you're not considering the ballistics. I used to think that you know you shoot it here, it goes so fast it doesn't matter, gravity doesn't affect it when that's not the case. You know if you take take a take a take a bullet in a, and put it in a rifle, and then take another bullet the same level on a desk next to it, if you shoot that and drop the bullet, they're both going to hit the ground at the same time, just in different places, because gravity doesn't care. Gravity's a law. So bullets, you, you know, when you miss, you're probably going to miss low, because if you think of a way a football is thrown, it goes up and down. You don't, a quarterback doesn't bounce it off the ground, and then it hits something else, and, you know, unless it's the Washington Commanders, that might happen. <laughs> um, but learn how to side it in. So learn... Learn what's the distance that you want to be away from your target to avoid wind affecting it. Because at distance, the wind starts. I used to think bullets go so fast the wind doesn't affect it. Not the case. The wind does affect it. The wind affects it the same way a moving target would affect it. And that's just the, the way it is. So learn, learn your ballistics. Learn how the bullet flies. Learn your holds. And importantly, and I learned this not as a sniper but as a hunter, learn where the first shot you take every day goes. Even when you sight stuff in, the next day, go out and shoot when it's cold. Take a cold bore shot because chances are that's your shot at an elk right there. Your kill shot should be your first shot. Uh, um, when you hit the animal, it should be your first shot. Unless you're my cousin, Corey, then it could be your fifth and or sixth shot. <laughs> um, another joke. Anyway, um, but we, we started to do this and we started to get better. And I, I learned about um, there are certain ways to hunt things. If you The lazier you are, the worse you're going to 
be unless you get lucky. I've been lucky with a lot of things in life. Um, but if, if, if you work, you don't need to work hard to say you worked hard. I know people that would go out there and they hear, like, listen how dumb this is. Hike forever, drag their kids with them. They won't see anything. Dude's smoking a cigar the whole way, doesn't care. They get to the top of the mountain because that's what you're supposed to do. And as soon as you're walking down with your kids who are miserable and they're going to grow up hating hunting, they, uh, I remember a dude would take his orange off and say, well, you can't take your orange off. And he said, well, I'm done hunting. Well, yeah, but you're on the mountain. <laughs> and there are people out here that will shoot at sound. I've seen it happen. But, you know, we learned that stuff and we hunted. Um, uh, and, again, not everything's going to work out the way you want it to work out. When, uh, one of the best hunting stories that I have is when I was 15 years old and I was going to be in the NBA. I was playing basketball every day. That's the plan. I'm going to be in the NBA. That's the plan. And the only time the perfect plan exists is in the planning room. But one day when I was practicing for my eventual trip to play for the Chicago Bulls, I uh, went up for a rebound. I came down on someone's foot. Right before the season, I broke my leg. But it's, you know, I, I'm my sophomore year shot. I'm not going to play, but it's still hunting season. What do we do? Well, we could sit there and whine about it, or we could actually do something about it. So we did. Well, what can we do? Well, I can't walk, so that means we got to get horses. Let's hunt on horseback. Well, we do live in Montana, but, um, you know, my father wears a suit to work, and we don't have horses. Well, let's find someone who does. So we did. And we found a group of people who were going to go up hunting, uh, at a place called Point of Rocks, which is near Gardner, Montana. And Gardner, Montana is a very special place because it's near a place you may have heard of called Yellowstone, which is a national park, and it's a really good TV show. I love Yellowstone. Um, my issue with Yellowstone, I never let politics get in the way of my entertainment or my ice cream. My issue with Yellowstone is now everyone I know is in, in Montana, especially if you thinks they're a rip. They think they're as tough as Rip, which you're tough, man. We got tough guys in Butte, but you're driving a dually and you're still an English teacher. It's like you're not Rip. But anyway, so it's near Yellowstone, which means uh, these there's park bulls in there. Uh, it's a very, very cold year. It's an especially cold year when I was a sophomore, so that's about 1992. And these elk are moving because they need to find places to eat because they got to eat to keep the heat. That's really good. Write that down. Eat to keep the heat. So they, they would leave the park and go. They get shot at by the people who have the, you know, you don't even need a gun. You just need a tag and a pair of track shoes because once the fire starts, run out there, tag that motherfucker. It's your bull. But then they get shot at, then they leave and they go north. So we figure there's going to be a bunch of elk up there. We go up to Point of Rocks and me and my dad, we found a group of dudes that would put, they made a special stirrup on a saddle for me to ride so the 15 year old dimwit has a cast on and we're gonna ride up and find elk so we're riding up our guns are sighted in i was about three horses back we did have a, a group of people going up so we're going up first day and we're expecting to hunt for i think we're gonna we got to camp for maybe two nights we're expecting that as soon as we get there and it's the first light we go over one little ridge sure enough there's 200 elk standing there and the wind's in our face, and we're on horses, so we don't necessarily uh, smell like them. And, and to the point where if an elk smells you, I may have mentioned this, it's worse than shooting at them. They know what a smell is. People even wear piss on them. In, in Butte, Montana, sometimes they just do that, wear piss on them. But you will wear the scent to not, you know. But we have horses, so they can't smell us. The wind's in our face. And somebody up front says they're going to get the, the, the broke dick kid from Butte. The 15-year-old shot, so he gets me off. We go up there. My gun sighted in. We go to the top. There is a six-point bulldog broadside in the middle of this herd, and um, I know my holds. I'd been prepared for this. I know the shot. And 
perfectly honest, the bull is about 150 yards from me as far as the as far as you know. As far as the story goes, this motherfucker is a mile away and I'm calculating the rotation of the earth. But he's so he's 150 yards. I know broadside basically dead center a little bit above the shoulder take the shot drop him they're moving my dad's coming up and he takes a shot at a at a running bull and missed and that pissed him off and i i can confirm that he definitely shot and missed even though he might deny it which is fine uh because my dad was famous tom o'neill will scope himself and i know what you're thinking scope is not a verb it is when you're dealing with my dad because a scope is when you get so in tune, so fine-tuned with the shot, you lean in a little far, especially shooting uphill. You lean a little too close to your scope, pow, right off your nose, boom. He turns around, trying to claim he didn't shoot, but he's got blood like he just got hit by Leon Spinks. <laughs> so, yes, he missed. I have a bull, but we're, we're not going to stop hunting, even though I'd like to. But we're going to go up to camp. So we ride up to camp, have the fire. We cook some stuff. It's kind of always fun to camp out. The next day we're going to go. But he's prepared for this thing. We don't know where we're going to run into. Always be prepared for your cold bore shot. We get out early the next day. We're driving out, and, and uh, we're on our horses. There's only a few of us at this point, maybe three of us. And we're riding over this ridge. It's, it's completely clean. There's there's tree line behind us. We're just barely getting out of the tree line. When One more ridge over. It's a place called Dome Mountain. It's a big dome north of Yellowstone. And uh, it's pretty much bare. It's, 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 uh, it's a bare mountain covered in snow, very cold up there. We hear some gunshots coming from that direction. So we'll call it a solid click, 1,000 meters away. Shots are fired, and this, this, bull, the, this bull is leading this charge. And we can see him over there, and he's got to go down a hill, and he's going to come up the hill. We're at, again, wins at our face. I don't know if we played it right, got lucky. Doesn't matter. Here we are. Doesn't matter how you got here. You're just here in life. Let's do this. So... The guy that I'm with, uh, uh, we decide, you run over there to my dad. Run over there. Get there. He's going to come up. So he runs over there. We get the horses. Now we're hauling ass towards my father. The bull, normally the way that it works with elk is the bull, the big bull comes out last. He'll let the cows and the calves go first. A couple junior bulls will come behind that. And the old bull, he's the smart one. He's, he's big for a reason. He knows what he's doing. He'll let them go. And that's one of the hard things, too, when you think you set up an ambush on a bunch of elk, is if a bull comes out at the end, do I take him or do I wait? Is there one more? There might not be. Now it's on me. Do I take the shot? Whatever. This bull was running so hard. He's in front. So he, I can. we get the horses. We're riding towards my dad on horseback. This bull's moving. We hear my dad shoot. Boom. Boom, boom, boom. Four times, he's reloading. I'm to the point where I'm getting pissed. I'm assuming he scoped himself again, which he did, by the way. And we're riding over to it. I'm, I'm yelling at him, why are you missing? I'm pissed because this is a big-ass bull. I killed a big six-by-six-point bull the day before. He's This one's huge. This is what we call a hog. And he's, I hear him yell I'm, as he's reloading, I'm not missing. He takes another shot, and I look again as we're riding towards him, and he's right. He was hitting him. The bull finally stopped. And he, he lays on the thing, and it's like, holy shit, you got a hog. And we go over there. Um, I actually have it. We're in a copy of, it's called Guns and Hunting Magazine. I don't even know if it's online. That's how long ago it was. Guns and Hunting is my dad and, and me and this huge bull that he just killed. And it looks like we're um, disheveled in the picture because we are. Be, because we're the reason we're in this magazine is a guy that took the shots that missed on, on uh, Dome Mountain wrote up. His name was Bill McRae, and he's an author for Guns and Hunting Magazine. He's writing a story called Bullish on Bad Weather. And he wrote in there that the reason we don't look as happy as we can be because on this particular ridge where we got this bull, the wind chill factor was 40 below zero. This is Montana. Welcome to Yellowstone. And then the work starts. Everything's fun. 
It's fun to ride the horse. It's fun to get dressed up all army. It's fun to get out in the woods and have camp, you know, slip a little bourbon in your coffee. It's fun to get up. It's fun to shoot and pull the trigger. Once you pull that trigger, that's when the work starts. How are we getting this big son of a bitch out of here? And we figured that out the hard way, too. But that, too, not only, you know, can I look, I can look at that into what we did. The work's going to start, but you better be prepared when you get there because you don't know which side it's coming out of. When we used to do uh, VBSS, Visit, Board, Search, and Seize on a ship, you don't just land on the ship. The work starts when you get there. So that's why we spent so much time in the wind tunnel, indoor skydiving, minutes and minutes and hours and hours upon hours. You got to get good at flying in the wind because when you jump on that mission, it's 1,000, 2,000, look 1,000, pull 1,000. You better nail that exit. You probably have fins on. You don't want to go ass over tea kettle, pull that ripcord, and have your lines wrap around you in a nasty horseshoe malfunction when you only jumped at 5,500 feet. Granted, you have the rest of your life to figure out a solution, but you want to nail that exit. That's why so many hours go into the training for the exit, for the pull. I hope that parachute rigger packed your water rig the right way. It better open. And I sure hope those four big parachutes on that cigarette boat we just launched out of the C-17 are ready to rock and roll. Now... I'm really happy that we hired all those uh, kick-ass canopy guys to teach us how to fly our canopies because we need to get in line in order and we need to land together because now we're going to get on that boat together. Now we get on the boat. Make sure you can get out of the thing. Now you got to get your uh, wetsuit off. You got to, you know, you're sinking your parachutes as far as I'm concerned. If you're training, I wouldn't recommend it. They're expensive, real-world mission. Sink them. Get in the thing. Parach- or the um, dry suit comes off. Now you have to get your gear on. You have to make sure your, your, your bag was in a shoot-through bag. Make sure it didn't leak. If it did leak, make sure your gun's ready. You do not want to shoot your gun with water in the barrel. Now that's ready. You, got, you, got, you should have a pistol. You're about to board a ship. What if you're the lead climber? you got to get up and over with that pistol. you got to make sure it's ready to rock and roll. you got to make sure um, all your gear is there and you're ready to go. Then you got to stock, and you better hope your boat drivers are good enough to stock this ship for 10 hours. Now you got to think of the, the little stuff. Maybe we didn't train for 10 hours. Maybe we simulated it, but now we're here for 10 hours in the boat. Are you going to get seasick? How do you avoid getting seasick? There's diesel. It's gross. Uh, we were red team, so it's obviously raining in, in you know, seven-foot seas. What kind of tobacco did you bring? What kind of dip did you bring? Or maybe a cigar. Guys did that. Some guys would bring a bucket of chicken. Yeah, that was a tradition. Some dude would pull out a bucket of chicken because when morale is high, you're good. Eat the chicken. We got a ways to go. Are the poles ready? Is your ladder ready? Had you cleaned it? Are they going to get stuck? You hooked the thing. Now you got to climb. And this is, I'm talking about, you're up next to a big ship. There's seas. You are, you are boat to ship. Clank, clank. Make sure you can time the top of that wave so that you can hook the boat. Now time the top of the wave because your, your ass is getting on that ladder. Don't do it too low because if you are low and then the boat comes up, guess what? Your ass is in the boat tied up in a, in a ladder. Time the top of that um wave grab it now the boat's below you now you i'm sure i hope you're in the weight room for the last few years because now you're climbing now your forearms are burned that's why we had the o course that's why we climbed the ropes you get up there hopefully if you're if you're the uh the point man clear that thing get up and over make sure there's a secondary secure for the ladder wait for the other guys okay now we got to make sure we get a full head count now we got to find the bridge and aft steering now it's time to work You've heard me talk about repetition. Every single episode, I talk about repetition, planning, and preparation. A report recently came out that American household net income dropped by over $6 trillion just in the second quarter of this year. 
That's the most on record. Were you prepared? What are you doing to plan for the report that's coming after the election? Take my advice. Protect your financial future with gold and silver from my friends at Allegiance Gold. Allegiance Gold can help you protect your IRA or 401k with physical gold and silver, or if you prefer, have it delivered securely right to your front door. I've been all over the planet, and there is one universal currency that is always of value, and that is gold. Allegiance Gold has some of the highest ratings in the industry. Five stars with TrustLink, AAA rated with the Business Consumer Alliance, and an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau. So go to protectwiththeoperator.com and get up to $2,500 of free silver on a qualifying purchase when you tell them the operator sent you. Or give them a call at 844-790-9191. That's 844-790-9191. We can't control the Biden administration, but we can prepare for the consequences of their policies. So that is protectwiththeoperator.com. That's protectwiththeoperator.com. Or call them at 844-790-9191. But that was important, and that's what we learned along the way. And that's why it's very important to be prepared. To admit when you're right or wrong and try to adjust to it. When I tell people um, we have rules for a reason, and if, if it's because, one, this is the, the safest way Point, the way we're doing it right now, the rule point A to point B is the safest way to do it. If someone comes up with a better way, then let's look at it, let's analyze it, let's train on it. And if it's good, let's change it and make sure all your people know the rules. And then uh, that's what we do and follow your rules. But you got to make sure your people know what they're doing. And, it's, and, that, and that's what we did. Uh, um, the, the fun doesn't start and stop once the trigger is pulled. And it's a lot more important than you think. Every little thing, like I was mentioning, adds up to the point of pulling the trigger and down to your tactics. You know, you need to know that if you're entering a room, entering that hatch on a ship, that portal on a ship, the guy behind you better be covering your back because when the bullets start on the 360 degree range, and if you get hit, it's not a video game where you can just respawn and start that level over. That's life and death, life and death stuff. And then um, once you pull the trigger, the work, is not over. It's not like, oh, there's my kill. That's another one, too. I never understood that. Um, people saying confirmed kills. I have this. How many confirmed kills do you have? I, I don't know how to confirm a kill. I don't know anyone that did. I know a lot of guys that killed a lot of people, and we never confirmed a kill. Yeah, this guy has this many confirmed kills. Like, seriously. So there's a dude at the Pentagon sitting at a desk waiting to hear from your commanding officer to tell him that you got another confirmed kill. I don't know. And I'm off on a tangent, but it doesn't just end there. You mark down your kill and your what you know, put a notch in your in the buttstock. Then you have work to do after that. For us in particular, the way the way you know, everyone did different stuff. The way it worked for us was we want to go in when the sun's down and we want to get in, we want to get our stuff done, and we want to leave before the sun comes up. A lot of guys worked in the day, obviously. A lot of guys doing a lot more dangerous jobs, I think, in Iraq and Afghanistan than we did. We, we got to choose when we fought. But we also want to make sure we're out of there before the sun comes up. Because our pilots, the best in the world, by the way, TF-160, we don't want them flying in the daytime because that's a needless risk. They would. 
but that we didn't want them to. We want to we want to get to a safe spot where we can uh, be out of whatever range. They pick us up and we leave, go back, and then we roll to the chow hall. And it w- that that was one good thing about our missions. When we got back to whatever forward operating base, it was always breakfast time, and we could have a bre- breakfast after. Um, a mission, and uh, I'm a big fan of the the mini sandwich. Like you can make a sandwich out of anything. Think about it. You can make a sandwich out of dessert. Like the other day on Halloween, I think I had pumpkin pie with whipped cream and then a cookie on top, and that's a sandwich. So that's one dessert. So I'm good. I, I think is how that works. But we want to get back before that. But but you need to make sure all your people are prepared before you get there, and that's all the stuff like I was mentioning before the trigger gets pulled, and then all the stuff after. The trigger gets pulled. Those pilots already know how to fly. I don't need to tell them how to fly. I'm not going to stand there and tell Al Mack, the best pilot in the history of the Army, how to fly. He, he, know, he got it. The air crew, they got it. They know what they're doing. They know how to keep the thing running. If and when I need one of those dudes to shoot a minigun at the enemy, he's got it. I, I, I actually knew an Army dude. We were doing some missions in Paktika province with TF-160, and they were using the 47s, the Chinooks, and one of their guys, uh, one of the door gunners, got his first kill. And it was uh, with a minigun, right? And uh, you saw a minigun, what does it shoot? 2,000 to 3,000 rounds a minute, maybe more. But it's 7.62, this minigun, this kid's shooting. And the first kill he got was with a minigun. I guess on insert, you're, you're, they're not going to see everything. I guess on insert, one uh, some insurgent got like within the um, the perimeter, like within the the... the the blades of the helicopter, and he blasted this dude with a minigun. And the kid was a little shook. I think we were having breakfast sandwiches after. I, I asked him, are you good? And he goes, he just vanished, which is a, that's a pretty good first kill. But you want to make sure all your people know what they're doing. That's the intel guys that got us there. That's, again, the parachute riggers if we're on a ship. It's, it's the, uh, the boat drivers. It's the intel. They got to be right. That's what sucks about them is they got to be right, and they never get credit. They rarely get credit for doing what they're supposed to do. And then... You know, when when we're done, we got to make sure our shit's together. We we have to debrief on target, make sure we know everything that happened on in that house. And I mean, we we have to know how many how many people were there, how many women, how many children, how many dudes, how many kills. And I would always make fun of of. We used to have a thing before the war started called the Huts card, which is like hostages, unknowns, tangos for terrorists, and and Sierra for seals. Huts, and like you're supposed to mark down. Like, if you kill the guy in a room, and this is before I had a kill, and I was, it made sense, but I'm like, after we started killing people, I'm like, it's not like I left the room and was like, hmm, did I just smoke a dude in there? I can't remember. Let me check my Huts card. Oh, yeah. Oh, I did. Yes, good. So that's one. So someone call that dude at the Pentagon, tell him O'Neill got another kill, <laughs> whatever. Um, but um, even when you're, so when you're done, think about this. There's stuff on the back end. When you get back, um, and you, your shit better be together with all the interrogation stuff and all the loot that you grabbed. Uh, sorry, intelligence you grabbed off of the uh, the folks on target. If you kill someone now, especially later on in the wars, when more lawyers got involved and more officers got involved, you got to do what's called a shooter statement. So you need to write down what happened. You need to have it signed by a couple of your guys. We were in Afghanistan to a point, and there are many reasons I got out before 20 years. One of them was we would have Afghans they needed to corroborate our story. They needed to sign it, right? These dudes couldn't read. These dudes, the Afghans we worked with, some of them, they didn't know what year, well, what time was. They can't read. They can't write. They would literally mark your X. So I'm assuming he can't read in Pashtun, but he read my shooter statement and he corroborated it. Okay, USA. 
Um, and, but, but you need to make sure all your people know what they're doing. And it's important, too, this gets back to the people skills. You, I think you need morale to be high. Uh, not, um, not your shit bags. You don't need to, I think, again, this is me being a realist, I think that you should you should uh, be able to pick who's the best and then take them. But now we need to take certain people just because we don't want to hurt their feelings. Um, you should be able to shit can people if they're not good, but but um, sometimes you can't. But but the people who are there, I mentioned the intel people. I mentioned like the the supply guys, the the yeoman, the people who stay on base. Um, it's it is important to let them know seriously what they're doing is important. You don't need to kiss their ass, but please and thank you for normal work is fine. Just to give them that bump up. It's like when I deal with the TSA every day. Not every day, but four times a week. Start that day off with an, a genuine compliment for something out of the ordinary, and your day is going to be better. So e- even in the military, tack a please on once in a while, or thank you for, for doing that. goes a long way. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's the preparation. That's the teamwork. And that's the, the, everything in life you can sort of relate to a lot of things. Your people skills are always there. You're, you should be learning how to deal with people from the word go. It's tough now because, you, um, you know, you, you should. Everyone texts each other now, even if they're sitting next to each other. That's a, I think we covered that before. But th- this is stuff that, that I learned before I got to the Navy, and I was good uh, in a lot of the stuff in the military, land warfare, some jungle warfare, because um, I was outside a lot hunting. Now, the jungle was different. My, my first experience with the jungle wasn't at SEAL Team 2. It was actually at SEAL Team 6, and we were preparing for a hostage rescue down in South America, so we went to Panama to train in the jungle. That's my first time in the jungle, and um, I learned that the jungle is unique because unlike the, the ocean with sharks, uh, the sharks, you know, you are in their world. They are top of the food chain. You're the bottom, but they're not trying to eat you. Uh, in the jungle, I'm pretty sure everything's trying to kill you. Everything. The the big snakes, the bullet ants, the fire ants, the anything's trying to kill you, the the jungle. Uh, so yeah, so I didn't learn much uh, you know, at Fleecer Mountain near Dillon, Montana about the jungle, but I I was comfortable to be outside the survival stuff that you can live with uh, a will goes a long way. That's confidence again, that's morale. The hunting thing too, this is I'm gonna jump away here because I'm starting to talk about snakes and lizards and shit. Plenty of stuff for the kids to play with. Um uh Speaking of hunting, and because we're, thank God, almost done with the midterms, I need to bring up, there's a crew called Hunter Nation that's out there right now, and they got this deal going called Hunt the Vote because they're trying to register hunters to vote. And it makes sense because there's 15 million registered hunters in the United States of America going from the West Coast to the East Coast, and we hunt all kinds of different stuff but but a lot of hunters haven't voted in the the latest data says most hunters haven't voted in the last three cycles and 15 million registered hunters is a lot of voters and what the hunters are saying and they're getting interviewed by liberal networks because they're they're kind of sketch about this because the the liberals don't say shit when there's um an ad at halftime of uh of of an nfl game get out and vote and they're not saying vote for democrats but they're saying get out and vote you know what they're saying but hunters, they, they, they're not in huge stadiums. They're out in onesies, twosies, little groupies. And um, they, they were saying that, you know, th- this one vote, it doesn't matter, plus politicians don't really have their interests in mind, is what the hunters are thinking. But hunters have a lot, lot, of, a lot of good views because you got to figure, Second Amendment, they want to keep their guns. They like their guns to hunt. They want to have access to land and... Whether you can believe it or not, um, 
private billionaires and our government is is eating up the land. They want to take it from us, and that goes back to cow farts and deer farts because that's killing the you know the climate because the you know, the climate change because you know scientists were wrong during two years of COVID, but they got this fifty years from now weather down to a science. But um, hunters want to keep that stuff, and you you realize if you get a a, a group that big, um. And they're voting. That's that's interesting. And 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 even though they obviously lean to the right, uh, I'm not saying uh, you know I hate both parties. I just don't want to work with them. But you think there would be interest, which there is, with uh, like MSNBC interviewing hunters up there. And you got hunters everywhere. Like from um, I'm a Montana, and it's up there. Uh, Utah. I, I've actually spoken to Hunter Nation in Utah. And and there's a. <laughs> this reminds me of uh, my friend John James is running for Congress in Michigan. Uh, I love what we. Uh, we all call each other, so it's Montanans or Utahns, the best one by far. And I challenge you to find a better one. In, in Michigan, they're called Michiganders. And that sounds to me like a knight or a Decepticon. Look out, it's Michigander. But uh, Hunter, Hunter Nation is, is really cool. It's, um, it's a great spot. And these are good people. These are good people that have, you know, I travel a lot. I talk to people face to face. These people have American values. And, you know, they want the land, they want the hunt, they want their guns. They, you know, other than the land, they want to be left the fuck alone. So Hunter Nation's really cool. I like them. Um, I actually did an event with Donald Trump Jr. at a Hunter Nation thing. He's a great hunter. We were up in Utah, and we did a couple. Um, we, we were driving around in a vehicle, going to different houses and talking to people, just sort of talking about how important it is for hunters to vote. And... Uh, like in between, we'd go. I was staying at a cabin. He was staying somewhere else, and he wanted to hunt. And I, I was like, you know, I'm good. This is back when, again, I have the bug now. I didn't want to hunt there. Uh, I think, and he can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so I'm sleeping. I'm gonna sleep, and I don't have a desire to hunt. I think he got like, um, he got a a, a a mule buck and a bear in one morning or some shit. He's a great hunter. Talk about ballistics. That guy knows his shit, and I'm not even lying. He can shoot. Good hunter, good guy. Another, and you know, obviously it's going to be controversial. God forbid I talk about uh, a successful American. Uh, uh, the spokesperson for Hunter Nation is a guy who I've mentioned before, and his name is uh, Ted Nugent. And that's just cool. A, a good Ted Nugent story, speaking of Michiganders, we were in, um, we were in Detroit, Michigan, we being... Me and my brother Tom, my older brother Tom, and we were going to go to a Kid Rock show in Detroit, but we're hanging out at Kid Rock's house before the show. So it's just a group of us, me and Tom, Kid Rock's getting ready at the thing. His shows are amazing. And uh, Nugent said, hey, I'll just drive you two. So, uh, so we drove there, and Ted's driving this SUV. I'm in front with Ted, my brother's in the back. Ted's going about 100 miles an hour. And... I remember looking back at uh, Tom. Tom's scared shitless, and he goes, uh, what if we get pulled over? And I said, I hope we get pulled over. This would be great. And he said, why? I said, can you imagine the cop coming up to the window looking at Ted Nugent saying, you know, getting on his radio and saying, hey, uh, boss, I just pulled over someone important. I don't know who he is, but his driver is Ted Nugent. But I was mentioning the stuff that we do before, during, and after the mission with the preparation and the rituals involved with that. One of the rituals we had was dip. We would dip before and after briefs on missions. Um, you know, I would eat a meal fast so I could get to a dip. I still wanted the ritual, but I wanted to get away from the tobacco. If you're 21 or over, here's an alternative called Black Buffalo. It's a tobacco-free dip made from edible greens, 
and it tastes just like the real thing. Pouches and long cut, you got to try Black Buffalo. If you go to blackbuffalo.com, you'll get 15% off your first order. This is made in the Southwest, raised in the South, manufactured here in the United States, proud supporter of the military and veterans, and you're going to get all kinds of flavor. you got straight wintergreen, mint, even blood orange. So go to blackbuffalo.com, 15% off your first order when you use code THEOPERATOR. So use the code THEOPERATOR at blackbuffalo.com. Yeah, so um, those are some hunting stories. You're, if you've heard those before, either in person or on this podcast, um, you know, bear with me. I mentioned before you're going to hear, you might hear the same stories. Um, I mean, Bin Laden wasn't in that story, so just be thankful for that. Uh, so that's the, um, the hunting thing, the outdoors thing. I mentioned the jungle. Uh, being outside, it's good to get outside. Um, I, I I said the ocean, and I was uh, I wanted to bring that up too because I mentioned, and I have before that uh, the ocean's amazing. That's Mother Ocean. That's the that's the that's where civilization started, as far as I'm concerned. Like, uh, well, other than Adam and Eve getting the rib broken and, and eating apple, she should never have done that. But in the ocean, that's you know we get in and the ocean is great. We're not on the menu. Regardless of what people love to think, there are apex predators out there. I, I've actually done uh, uh, some dives with them, and I've been in the water of the great whites and, and uh, without a cage with tigers, great hammerheads, bulls, which I'll never do again, but like lemon sharks that are cool as hell and reef sharks that are just different personalities everywhere. Well, I'm going to get uh, Andy Casagrande on here, uh, ABC4 Explorer, just a solid, solid dude. He's a he's a photographer. He's he's the dude on the internet that has like no cage, great white. Can't, and the only thing between him and and the Almighty is his camera. Very very cool proof that they're they're curious, which is scary, and I can prove it because there was a video recently of um, a woman by the name of Ocean Ramsey, and she is uh, she's a scientist. Uh, big-time ocean advocate, a model. I've never met her. Seems really cool. She's married to a dude named Juan Oliphant. I hope I said that right. And he's his his uh, his at is um, at Juan Sharks. And they 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 do. She's she's the woman that did you see dive with? Uh, I think the the shark's name is Great Blue with a huge female great white. No no um, no cage. And she's the, she's the woman diving with that huge shark. It's on there. Uh, badass, and that's just cool. And, and basically, she's raising awareness um, about sharks and, and and the ocean. But there was a video of her recently where she dives with um, with tigers a lot. All the like she knows, like these sharks know her. Uh, and there's one, her name, the shark, this giant tiger named Queen Nikki. And Ocean Ramsey's got a lot of footage of Queen Nikki on. Um, on her on her Instagram page and things like that, and th- the video recently was Ocean's getting ready to get off the back and 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 get in the water, and and you see her put her her she puts her mask her fins are in the water, she puts her mask in the water, and you can see a great white or not a great white sorry a, a tiger shark coming up, and so Ocean backs off, and it's Queen Nikki, and she comes out and she kind of raises her her uh, her head and her, her mouth comes out of. Of the um of the water and it, I mean that's a big ass tiger and and she said too the Queen Nikki's kind of like a like the grandma like she keeps the other younger tiger sharks in check and I guess the younger sharks are more a little more sketch because they don't have arms and their way to test you they're they're kids they want to test you but they have a mouth and they bite you but she hopped out and she kind of laughed it off and then all over the in- internet it's like woman almost dies woman almost jumps into mouths of awaiting jaws and 
Ocean Ramsey's kind of laughing about, and that's Queen Nikki, and she, you know, and she'll do the stuff where they they uh, they, they they divert the shark, they touch them on the mouth to keep the shark from biting the ladder or the the engine, which is bad. Um, they started a cool thing called uh, One Ocean Organization, so that's Ocean Ramsey and, and One Sharks, pretty badass stuff. But that's again being outside, not being afraid to go outside. I mean, shit happens. You get in the ocean, you could you could be dinner, but it's not. It wasn't what it looked like, and that's just a really cool thing with nature. So what else is what else we got going on recently? Oh, so I you know I got to talk about current events. Uh, I'm a big Twitter guy at Makuya. Twitter's hilarious. It was hilarious. I thought now it's even funnier because Elon Musk took over, and Elon Musk is we all know who he he's you know Tesla and rocket ships. He's going to colonize Mars. Um, it's actually liberals are losing their not liberals but like lefty lib, lefty lefty liberals are losing their minds. Because Elon Musk owns it. He's not a right-winger, by the way. And I think a lot of these liberals are pissed because they bought a Tesla electric car to save the planet, but it kind of funded Elon Musk to own Twitter. And, uh, you know, there, there's stuff right now where they're getting pissed off that that um, they might charge 20 bucks a head to keep a blue check mark if you have. I'm paying it. I'll keep that blue check mark. And, but I did. I noticed even right away that it's... Uh, they were shadow banning a lot of people. I, I I started getting more followers, and I've said some stupid shit on Twitter. You've all said stupid shit. And anyone, I mean, you're you're gonna do it today. And anyone tells me that they um they've never said stupid shit. You're you're an idiot, and and it's okay to change. Like you don't need to, something something you said six months ago. You can say, yeah, I said that, but I'm dumb and I changed my mind. Whatever. Um, but he bought it, and and now these these lefties are. They're rallying around each other because a lot, you know, it's the whole, if Trump wins, I'm moving to Canada. And no, you're not. But they're saying now if, if, uh, if Elon Musk charges 20 bucks or whatever, and this is the right wing trying to come get us, we're getting off Twitter. And some, some people were saying, um, don't leave Twitter, stand and fight like the Ukrainians. First of all, fuck you. Stand and fight like the Ukrainians. It's a little different in Kiev right now. It's a little different without running water and sewage treatment in the winter in fucking Ukraine than typing your sensitive little thumbs against tweets. But anyway, that's that's fun. I'm staying on. I'll pay the 20 bucks a month. So that's um, that's a Twitter sphere. That's the thing about sharks. That's social media, which isn't real, which is the point that I make, why you need to get outside. In talking about preparation, one key that might be overlooked is a good night's sleep. It's very important to get a good night's sleep. So I want you to check out Ghost Bed. They have very comfortable mattresses that last forever. And they're made in the USA. Every mattress has a 20-year warranty. Some even have a 25-year warranty. You can try one out for 101 nights. And if you don't like it, send it back. No hard feelings. One of my favorite parts about Ghost Bed is that the each mattress has a cooling technology. So if it's a hot night, which it usually turns into, not with this. Ghost Bed also offers bundles so you can get everything you need. So you don't need to think about it. Choose from... One of their four mattresses and then pick your bundle. So whether you just need a mattress and a frame or you want it all like cooling pillows or sheets, uh, they're offering 40% off when you go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. And you can even check out their new RV mattresses. Like when if you get your crack out of bed at the crack of dawn, this is the place to be. Check out ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. So those are, you know. Twitter, the Twittersphere, the internet, and real world. We talked about being outside, being in the jungle, being in the ocean, and being online. And it's a, it's a fine line between perception and reality. And we see a lot of that going now because these midterms are so close to being here. 
you notice people circling back on shit that they used to say. Uh, remember how popular defund the police was? Defund the police. Pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon. You know which side was saying that. Defund the police. Um, get rid of the cops because of police brutality. Um, and now they're coming back saying, well, we never said, we never said defund the police. You know, we were saying, uh, what is it, reimagine all that nonsense. Uh, even right now, like down in Georgia, Stacey Abrams is running. I don't know where she came from. She's been around for a while. She's, she's a denier, too. She's, she still thinks she won the last one. But she's saying right now that like no sheriff is supporting her in this bid. And she's saying that's just because, well, I'm not a member of the good old boy network. No, it's because cops hate you. That's, and, and she said, well, I never said defund the police. Y- you did, and it's on video. It's hard to find a lot of them because uh, your friends in the media are covering them up. But, uh, the, I mean, the, the crime thing with the, with the uh, that's a hard one to deny. Crime's there. And, uh, like, Kathleen Hochul, I think I said it right this time, who's running for mayor. She was never elected, but she's, she was put there. She's calling people that are talking. Okay, murder in New York City. She, so she's running for, for a governor in New York. Murder in New York City is up 32%. Grand theft auto is up 148%. People are getting pushed in front of subways. And this is the whole thing where it's, it's almost like the, like we were saying earlier, the stuff before and the stuff after. Because they're cashless bail, they're letting people out of, out of jail, and your criminals are out there. And, like, it, you, st- you got to nip some of that in the bud. The guy that pushed someone in front of the subway probably didn't pay his fare. So if you can get the guy that jumps the turnstile, maybe you'll save something else. It's, it's again, a butterfly effect, but they're not doing it. And they're having a trouble with um, get, with cops. They don't have a lot of cops. Well, with, here's something else, too, perception reality. Why would you want to be a cop in a major city right now? Because, again, this is the humanity of things. Like in war, this, this is real. These are real people. Cops are real people. And they have families. And they have livelihoods. And uh, why would you want to go to a city where the mayor doesn't like you? They're saying defund the police, where the city council hates you, where the DA is letting people out, where if you do anything wrong, there's cell phones everywhere. And you're going to jail. If I was a cop, I just sit back and be like, fuck it, trying to get to that pension. I remember being in um, Times Square a year ago, and there were police recruiters from Florida trying to get NYPD down there. And it's like, we'll get you in the suburbs in Florida and a car. And, I, and, and you're going to be good. You won't put up with this shit. As a guy with a family, as a woman with a family, why wouldn't you do that? No one has your back in the cities until the midterms. And now we're trying to get reelected. And this, is, this, should, this should be offensive. That, that's it. And, and th- I mean, even think about the butterfly effect, too. Um, all the voters that I've seen in New York, the crime. They're worried about crime. Because they take public transportation, crime, subways, crime. Um, imagine if people stop using public transportation and everyone's taking a cab. Can you imagine the gridlock in these major cities? But they're, uh, it, it doesn't matter. They're going to lie to you. We're just data deniers. And, and now they want to they they punish oil. Um, they're denying inflation, telling you that it's wrong. There is no inflation. We aren't in a recession. You can't lie about the price of toothpaste and lettuce and stuff you're buying at the grocery store. And their, their idea right now, uh, Joe Biden was listening to, here's a great, here's a great guy to listen to for uh, economic advice. He was listening to Bernie Sanders. And what we're going to do is we're going to tax excess profits on oil companies, 95% excess profit. An excess profit 
tax is, is an extra tax imposed on business profits or income above a certain rate. So you profited this much last year, a little bit more this year. We're just going to tax that 95%. Fuck it. Just go for 100. I'm sure they'll keep doing what they're doing. But And, and so they're, uh, the left right now is, is uh, they're, they're pressing for everything. They're railing against big oil while they're asking for more investments. Like they just don't get it. And uh, they're against fossil fuels. Again, these are the first world problems that we've created by scientists who may or may not be telling us the truth, but they're getting funded by government. So they're going to say what they want. The people that deny stuff are, are not going to get funded, and it's that simple. So they, they, they lobby for a lot of this stuff. Fossil fuels are bad. You've heard that. This is why dipshits are gluing themselves to stuff. This is why people are stopping traffic, because they want to get rid of fossil fuels. Do you realize without fossil fuels, we would be burning wood for energy? We'd be back to that. They're doing that. In Europe, they're burning wood, and the winter is coming, and the prices are going up. And these people waiting on um, global warming might not live to see global warming because they froze to death. It's time to get realistic. It was nice to have these first world problems, but now we're starting to see what happens with shutting down pipelines and the refineries. We, we, need, we, we need to worry about the demand. There's a diesel shortage, and diesel runs everything. If, if, if the... If the if the tractors stop and the trucks stop and we can't fly and you can't get food. These are shortages. I was, I was listening to a, a farmer, I think, in Wisconsin. He said his 300-horsepower uh, tractor, I guess, which is normal, cost him $1,500 a day to run. That's two and a half times what it was a year ago. I uh, listened to Larry Kudlow, who's a brilliant guy, and he made a list of uh, – his, his partial list – of what fossil fuels make, and this is his. He said, uh, let's see, phones, clothes, toothpaste, asphalt, trash bags, laptops, fertilizer, diapers, pacifiers and toys used by parents and babies, pacemakers, MRIs, IV bags and tubes, surgical instruments, stethoscopes, prosthetics, hearing aids, glasses, contact lenses, soap, antiseptics, aspirin, tennis rackets, tents, tires, toothbrushes, backpacks, ballpoint pens, beach umbrellas, dog collars, golf balls and bags, guitar strings, <laughs> hair curlers, and let's not forget insect repellent. That's what Larry Kudlow said. I heard that, and that made a lot of sense. Um, and that's So we're running out of this stuff. We can't use that. It's, you're just taking step backwards. Diesel oil is, is, a, is a, it's a fuel it's designed to work in an internal combustion engine. We're going to run out. There's something like a 20-day supply. If we run out, I mean, I have faith in a lot of our, 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 uh, our scientists and geologists, and I think that, but these refineries are running at a, over 100%, like 102% level. And we, if we run out of that, it's, that's it. It's, it's this, this, um, what's happening now in the media reminds me of a guy. And I'm going to give you a little history lesson here for people that weren't quite paying attention when we invaded Iraq. His name was Mohammed Saeed al-Shahaf, and he was the Iraqi information minister. And he was known lovingly as Baghdad Bob. He was the guy that was on TV as we're invading, as we're surrounding Baghdad, as we're taking the Iraqi airport, Saddam International Airport, and he's the dude that's just making shit up, saying, we've surrounded the Americans and their tanks, and the Americans are committing suicide by the thousands. He's just spouting this shit off, to a point where even George W. Bush, who was the president and the commander-in-chief, obviously, of the invasion, and he said, uh, he's great. And uh, um, he, he was making fun of Shaq and, uh, and he, he eventually we captured him. He was grabbed in a roadblock. Uh, Baghdad Bob. Uh, they, they were actually calling him Comical Ali. Comical Ali instead of Chemical Ali. He was the, the, the fucker that used chemical weapons against a lot of people, even though Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction. He used them in Chemical Ali. They called him Comical Ali. 
Uh, he was captured. His answers really shortened. He was actually a Shiite, and Saddam was a Sunni, so he was lucky to get that uh, that high up in the, in the pipeline. And another reason, I was doing research on Baghdad, Bob. I love Wikipedia. You know that you can go in there and change whatever you want. I was looking at his... his uh, his bio, and it said University of Baghdad and the University of Arizona, which I thought was hilarious. He's in Tucson at the Trident. That was pretty funny. Um, but when he got captured, he said, my, he said, my information was correct, but my interpretations were not. That was Baghdad Bob. So he's basically just on, uh, on TV lying, kind of like we see right now. And people have asked me, where is, um, where's Kem- or where do you think Baghdad Bob is right now? He's like, well, he's probably running for... Uh, running for office somewhere in the United States, or he's the turnstile operator that says, oh, you didn't see that. Nobody got pushed in front of the train. <laughs> he's, he's, he's just BSing you. Oh, yeah. Baghdad Bob, I thought I'd give him a shout-out. I, I think he's in Qatar somewhere, but just funny. If, if you're bored, go to, go to YouTube or something, look at his old stuff. So speaking of perception and reality, what I'm going to close with, and this is a story that I take absolutely no pleasure in, um, there is a, a, a female basketball player, and her name is Brittany Griner. And she was just rolled up in um, Russia, which is bad, because she had a vape pen with very, very minuscule amount of uh, hemp oil, weed, THC, something like that. But it's enough. She's high profile enough that they're going to roll her up for a number of reasons. Number one, we have a weak administration. Uh, Vladimir Putin's at war with Ukraine. He knows we don't like that. Uh, we're obviously sending arms in there and, you know, laundering money and all that shit on the side. But Putin doesn't like that. She definitely got rolled up. She is a high-profile person, and she she pled guilty, appealed it, but got sentenced to nine years in a labor camp, which is a gulag, which is in the tundra, which takes you weeks to get to by truck. These places are bad. I'm going to give you a quick background Brittany Griner, and, and her thing is, I, I, uh, I know po- politics aside, she, was a, she, she took a knee for the national anthem, said it shouldn't be played there. This is the United States of America. That's free speech. That's my stance on it. You want to do that, you do that. You stay in the locker room, that's your call. We're not a police state yet. But she, she made a point of saying, I don't want the national anthem played uh, at the games. I don't think it should. You are living in a free state. And this is what our freedoms provide, and you're allowed to do that. And she's a badass, okay? I'm, I'm going to go through some of her stats. Uh, as a senior in high school, um, she had 52 dunks. Yeah, 52. She had 52 dunks in a, in a – she had seven dunks in a game. That's like Shaquille O'Neal shit at LSU, right? That's insane. She set a record 25 blocks in a game. This is in high school, so she's going to be the best in the country. She went to Baylor. Um, she had a triple-double which is, you know, uh, double digits, three categories, so 34 blocks, 13 rebounds, and a big 12 conference record, 11 blocks. Uh, she, she has, a, 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 in men's, a size 17. So she's tall. She's awesome. Uh, plays for the Phoenix Mercury, which is a, um, apparently a team in the WNBA. They, they say, because she went and played in Russia, too, and they said, well, most people in Russia can't even name a WNBA team. And I'm like, mm, most people in America can't either. But uh, she was like an ESPN SB Female Athlete of the Year, uh, everything you can imagine. So McDonald's All-American, High School Player of the Year, uh, uh, NCAA champ, WNBA champ, eight-time All-Star, scoring champ, two-time Defensive Player of the Year. She won three titles, Russian League, four four Euro League titles, 
Um, she's she's a badass. Like I, I played basketball, and I think she would kick my ass, even in in my prime when I was a solid six six one on paper. It's not quite the case. One one inch shorter. Um, and, and they say that uh, she. We, so then they start. You know, I don't want her to be there. These these gulags that she's in. This is not cool. This is not the United States either. Our prisons here suck. They're not gulags. Like if you leave one of these Siberian prisons, if you get out, it's just tundra. There's nowhere to go. They're not really feeding you in there. Morale is so low. Suicide rates are high. Abuse of all kinds by the guards. You can't do shit. Labor. 18 hours a day of hard labor. Like this is this is the biggest morale dump in the world. And people say, well, you know, if you were in there, she wouldn't care. All right, maybe. But maybe you should care about her because that's, that's – uh, you being there isn't going to happen. She's there. And I think we should care. And I wish something would be done about this. I hope it will. Um, they're actually, there was a, they were in talks to um, trade her for uh, an international arms guy, an international arms dealer. Uh, his name was Victor Bout, and he's a bad dude. We got him locked up somewhere. Um, you know, the typical, like, um, uh, war dogs type guy, running guns, bad dude. <laughs> he, he's got a powerful mustache game. Like, if you look up Victor Bout, you'll see his mustache. Great mustache. I, you know. He's, he, I guess he's a, a, a Soviet translator, and which means he speaks English. I guarantee with that mustache, he has said the word tarnation before. But she's over there. It's really, really bad. Uh, and she's not necessarily anti-American. I mean, she's the, she's the, um, her dad is a sheriff and was a, a, a Marine Vietnam vet. And, and Vietnam vets, especially Marines, um, we owe them a lot, we as veterans, because we get treated well as veterans because they got treated like shit. And her dad is a, a Vietnam Marine. It's in her family. But they're saying, well, she had to play in Russia because uh, they don't pay female athletes enough, which fair. Uh, I'm also a believer, like, if, look, if you don't fill the stands with paying customers, you shouldn't be subsidized by other leagues, the NBA. But she played in China. A four-month contract for $600,000, which is nothing to throw a women's basketball ad she's the first openly gay athlete um to sign with nike and that was a, a million dollar contract and she's getting paid by the w and a lot of endorsements she didn't need it for the money she's going over there it's fine she's working her ass off that's a lot of travel she might have been making a point and she got caught and now she found herself in a spot where well i guess i don't uh i guess i don't hate the national anthem they're not playing the national anthem in that gulag so this is, again, perception versus reality. And you need to have a dose of reality instead of a lot of the fantasies that you believe in, a lot of the stuff that we make up where we're offended by the truth. But my, this bullshit that I spout, you got to believe or else you're a phobic of insert phobia. You know, it's, it's like some of these phobias, too. It's like I'm not phobic. I just think you're fucking weird. But that's that. And she's over there. It's one of those things like Colonel Nathan Jessup said in... Um, a few good men. You're someone who lives and breathes beneath the blanket of freedom that I provide and then question the means by which I provide it. So that's it, you know. Keep your shit together and you're never out of the fight.